Good morning, church family. It is, uh, it's good to gather together and always good to sing of God's grace to us. As we just read, uh, you know, we're in Luke chapter 19, and this is the uh, famous, it's, it, we're, we're on, it's not a Palm Sunday, and yet here we are reading uh, the, the text that is normally heard on Palm Sunday. And so, uh, so we'll be there together in Luke 19. Well, there's a new obsession uh, with big moments that seems only to be growing. And I think this is partially the fault of social media. Uh, people are like jumping out of airplanes to ask their girlfriend to go with them to the eighth grade dance. I mean, we're getting to that sort of level of ridiculousness. I mean, save it for save something. Um, but personally, I, I love a good moment. So I'm a little torn with this stuff. It's getting out of hand, but I do love a moment. Uh, my wife uh, often will affectionately, I think it's affectionate, uh, will affectionately call me the producer. Uh, I, I'm, I'm not exactly sure where this started for me, uh, but some, somewhere early in the days of our relationship, I, I, she knew quickly that I, I enjoyed planning moments, like special times, dates together, those sorts of things. Um, and it usually involved a mixtape of some sort back in the day. Um, now a playlist, uh, something playing in the background. Uh, even, even when I proposed, uh, I took her to the Mississippi River Levee, which was the tallest hill I could find in Baton Rouge. Um, I tried. Uh, and as we, as we sat there and we ate our picnic uh, that I had packed, we're listening to the burned CD that I made on the portable CD player that I brought. Uh, I waited for just the right time. Because see, there was a song that was in the playlist that I had put there. And in that song, it was a song that we knew together. Uh, and in the bridge of the song, there was a, a young boy, or no, not a young boy, but a young man who would propose to his girlfriend up on a mountain. And the, the levee was the highest thing I could find. And so here we were. And when that song came on at that point in the song, that's when I went down on a knee and proposed. And there we go. Um, don't judge me. Um, <laughs> These, uh, there's something powerful about a crafted moment that doesn't let us forget it. And I think we'll see that in this text today, that, that the triune God is the best producer there is. That Jesus and the, and the Father have shaped a moment for the nation of Israel and, and, to, and also for us. It's, it's a big reveal of sorts, a, a triumphal entry, as many have dubbed this. And the message of this moment the king is here. The king is on the scene. God was shaping this reveal from before the foundations of the world. And so as we read Luke's account, I, I, we're really just gonna be walking through the story, this amazing moment crafted by God. And as we do, I, I want us to, to just be amazed uh, as we see five realities about our king. Number one, the humble king. Number two, the anticipated king. Number three, the rejected king. Number four, the true king. And lastly, the king of all. Let's, let's pray together again as we, as we dig in. Just right where you are, would you, would you pray for your own soul? Pray that the Lord would give you ears to hear, a heart that would receive his word. That even, even maybe you're distracted, maybe you're... Um, Maybe you don't even want to be here. Maybe you're eager. Whatever it is, would you ask the Lord to help you hear from his word this morning?
And now would you, would you pray for me that I would only speak what it is that God's word would have us to hear and that I would be led by his spirit um, so that we might hear what it is that he wants us to hear today. Father, we, we praise you for your goodness to us. We thank you for your mercy and, and the hope that, you, that we've sung about this morning. We, we thank you for your word, that you've revealed yourself to us. You've shown us who you are. You've, you've invited us in to see and to marvel at you. You've, you've called us and, and, and saved many of us. We praise you for that. Lord, would you help us this morning as we look together to your word? Lord, we lift up uh, the Hill family this morning to you as, as, uh, as Elijah is recovering. Lord, would you, would you heal his body? Would you help him to recover swiftly? Uh, Lord, we lift up our, our brother, John Evans, um, as, as he continues to uh, walk through cancer. And Lord, would you, would you we, we ask for healing, but we also ask that you would comfort he and Judy and, and uh, make both of them uh, strong, um, bring wellness and wholeness to them. And Lord, we thank you uh, for the opportunity yet again uh, to hear uh, from you. So would you lead us now? And we pray this in Christ's name, amen. Well, today's text is, uh, is really one of the major turns in the gospel of Luke. Uh, we've, we've been setting the scene. And so we've been, we've been in Luke for quite a while now. Uh, and we started with really the act one of the book, which, which is the miracle of Christ's incarnation, his birth, all the events surrounding his birth, followed by his, his grand introduction at his baptism, uh, and his temptation in the desert. Act two of, of his ministry after those first few chapters uh, was the next, really the big chunk of the book, uh, this, this ministry of Jesus uh, as he's all over the region, originally despised by his hometown, also, also despised by the Jewish leaders, but beloved, haven't we seen him be beloved by sinners, by outcasts, and by those who are in need, who are poor in spirit? And, and notice he, he didn't spend all of his time uh, in the epicenter of, of the, the, the religious faith. He didn't, he didn't spend his time with the movers and the shakers. He hadn't been in Jerusalem this whole time. No, he's been out in the backwoods of Galilee, proclaiming the kingdom through many signs, showing people what the kingdom is like and, and, and bringing the, the truth of who God is to those who would never be welcome into a temple, never into the synagogue in his own words, he tells us the son of man came to seek and to save the lost, not the found, not the well, but the lost, the sick. And so act two has been full of that sort of ministry. Uh, we, we've, and we've seen how disruptive it's been to the Jewish leaders. They, he's, he hasn't shied away uh, from being despised by them, but he's also operated a little bit incognito. Uh, remember back in Luke five, he, Jesus healed the man with leprosy. And what did he tell him? He said, don't, don't tell anyone, just go show yourself to the priest. Why? Because it wasn't the right time. 
It wasn't the right time. Yes, the crowds were, gr- were growing and there were, there were times where the Superman S on his chest was, was poking out uh, from behind his Galilean Clark Kent suit, but still he, he kept it under wraps. It wasn't time yet, but he was always headed to Jerusalem for act three. He'd been telling his disciples for a while that he was gonna suffer, which of course they refused to hear But now here at the end of Luke 19, it's time. The moment is here. And so as act three of his ministry begins, incognito mode is officially over. Number one, the humble king. Look at verse 28. When he had said these things, he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem. Okay, so let's just understand some topography here for a minute. He's traveling from Jericho to Jerusalem. This is about 14 miles on foot. And this is not like getting on the sidewalk out here on Brown Road and just walking for a while. Uh, No, we're talking about lots of ups and downs, very mountainous region. Uh, Overall, it's about a 3,500 foot rise in elevation uh, from Jericho to the Mount of Olives. Uh, like, like my, my family, we like riding around here in Tomball on our, on our bikes. And like, when we get to the church and we've got to ride back past Tomball high school, like, I don't know what that rise is, like a couple hundred feet maybe. Uh, but it's, man, I, we're just so happy when we get to the downhill. Uh, and, but this is a lot more than that, right? This is a long climb. Jesus has walked this his whole life though. This is what his disciples, where they've been. They've walked, they've walked this road a lot and, and, and they're nearing the end of this hike. Uh, and they reach the villages on the outskirts of Jerusalem, Bethphage and Bethany. Uh, and, and here they are a couple of miles out from Jerusalem. Um, and here we read in verse 29, or 29, he says, as he approached Bethphage and Bethany at the place called the Mount of Olives, he sent two of the disciples and said, go into the village ahead of you. As you enter it, you'll find a colt tied there uh, on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? Say this, the Lord needs it. And if you'll notice in the, in the ver- translation we read this morning, so, some of the CSBs, uh, the earlier, earlier printings of the CSBs use donkey, some use colt. The, the actual word here is colt, which could go either way. It could go, it could go a ba- baby or young horse or a young donkey, but all the, the other gospel accounts kind of clarify for us. This was a donkey indeed. And so you, you, we read this morning, it was a donkey. Um, but doesn't this feel like some sort of like Jedi mind trick moment where they're like, okay, just go into the town and say, this is not the donkey you're looking for. We just let us take the donkey. I mean, there, it's, it seems like a very odd thing uh, that, that Jesus is asking them to do. And we're not even sure why it worked. Uh, but remember, Bethany had been almost like a second home uh, to Jesus. He he'd spent a lot of time uh, in the home of his, of his good friends, Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. So people there likely knew him and knew his disciples. Um, so they, they probably trusted him. Um, And so, but look, it happened just the way he said it would, right? Uh, Look at verse 32. So those who were sent left and found it just as he had told them. As they were untying the colt, the owner said to them, why are you untying the colt? The Lord needs it, they said. Then they brought it to Jesus. And after throwing the clothes on the colt, they helped Jesus get on it. Okay, so this begs an important question as you read it. Like, why? (laughs) What is he doing? Like, it's not like he needed a donkey for that last one and a half or two mile ride down the mountain into the city. It sounds really random. Uh, it's, you know, it's, it feels a little bit like a MacGyver moment. Like MacGyver's always trying to detonate something um, and he's got to find 
four or five other things that he can use to detonate the bomb because he doesn't have what he actually needs. And so it's like, hey, I need a paperclip and a gum wrapper and a hair scrunchie and a coffee can, quick. Um, and th- he's collecting these things. And of course it always works, but Jesus is not doing that. Like he's getting the exact supplies he wants. He wants a donkey. Why? Uh, why, why is he doing this? He, he's, see, I think what we're seeing is he's in full-blown producer mode now. He's camped out at Bethany and he's preparing a moment that had been planned by the father in eternity past. Remember, Jesus has said, I only do what I see the father doing. And, and he knows that the father has planned and prepared this moment for the son. And in this incredible scene, we'll see a moment so remarkable, I think, that, that each of the gospel writers, all four, describe it to us. Jesus in this moment is creating something that is going to draw all of Israel, much of Israel to the edge of their seats. And why will it do that? Because they they know their Bibles. Uh, Luke's account doesn't remind us like Matthew's does, but Jesus knows that the people remember Zechariah's prophecy in Zechariah chapter nine. It says this, rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. Shout in triumph, daughter Jerusalem. Look, your king is coming to you. He is righteous and victorious, humble and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. So the Lord has set the scene. And as soon as the people see this Jesus riding down the hill on that donkey, the one who's been forgiving sin, who's been doing miracles that they've not been able to explain, when they see this scene, Zechariah 9 is just gonna click in their mind. It's like like hearing the first line of a song and going, hey, I know the rest. I know the next lyrics. There he is. He's humble. He's riding on a donkey towards Jerusalem. He's a righteous person. The people are rejoicing. He's a king. This is our king. And what a seemingly strange moment the father has crafted here. I mean, look, the father could have orchestrated any number of things to happen. Remember back at Jesus' baptism, he, he, he parts the clouds, he speaks from heaven. So he could have done something like that. Um, but, but notice what he's doing here. Notice the contrast uh, that has been created here. A king on a donkey. Not on a war horse, like Alexander the Great would have been when he had ridden into town generations earlier. Not on an army chariot, not with a secret service detail walking alongside, not even with 75 golden camels. No, he's, he's on a donkey. His friend's coats are the saddle. And palm leaves and clothes are the red carpet. And, and about that donkey, this, this divine king, he doesn't even own his own donkey. He's borrowing a donkey. Martin Luther said it this way. He said, look at him. He rides no stallion and he comes not with fearful pomp and power, but sits on a donkey, which is no war animal, but which is ready for burdens of work that will help human beings. Thereby he shows that he does not come to terrify people, to drive or oppress them, but to help them, to carry their burdens and take them on himself. See the humility of our Lord. The, the very one with no place to lay his head, no steed of his own, the one riding in on a donkey. He's the same one who spoke galaxies into existence, 
the same one holding every molecule in place even now. He is majestic and yet weak, powerful and yet full of mercy. He is both lion and lamb. And to every Jew with eyes to see, with ears to hear, this entrance is, is showing them, behold, your Messiah, your King, he's here. Which leads to number two, the anticipated king. Okay, so the props have been gathered, the, the scene is set, and the Lord Jesus is going to say action. Look at verse 36. And he was going along. They were spreading their clothes on the road. Again, this is like an ancient Near East red carpet rollout. Verse 37. Now he came near the path from down the Mount of Olives and the whole crowd of disciples began to praise God joyfully with a loud voice for all the miracles they'd seen. Uh, think of the huge crowds of disciples that had been gathered around Jesus during his ministry where sometimes it was even hard to move and, and to travel. And now they're walking ahead of him. They're walking behind him. They're lining the two mile road. The, the crowds of people, many of whom whose lives he had changed. And this is his escort into town. And we know that it even more crowds were coming out from Jerusalem. Uh, people are coming out. They're, they're becoming part of the crowd. And, and, and many of them knew exactly what they were seeing and they were filled with joy. It was, it was more than a worship service. It was a coronation. And so this is what they shouted. Verse 38, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. What, what's amazing about this is, you see that Jesus produced the moment, but now they go, oh, I've got my own playlist for this. They said, we've got a song that we, that we know just for this moment. And it wasn't hail to the, to the chief. It wasn't God save the queen. It wasn't even, I just can't wait to be king. Uh, no, they, they sang from their own songbook, Psalm 128 or Psalm 118. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Psalm 118, 26. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And this phrase, we hear this phrase and it's a link. They're saying the whole Psalm is in view right here. The singers are pointing us to the whole psalm. This is who they thought Jesus was. This is all from Psalm 118. He, he's verse two, the Lord's faithful love for Israel. He's verse seven, the Lord's helper for his people. He's verse eight, he's our refuge. In verse 10, the, the psalm says that the nations are surrounding them like, like a fire. But in verse 14, he's the salvation from the Lord to extinguish the flame. The other three gospel writers also tell us that the crowd was crying out, uh, Hosanna, Hosanna to the son of David, which is also in Psalm 118, which is verse 25. So well, why, why Hosanna? Why, why do they shout this? Uh, you may have heard of the word Hosanna and, and it means save us. That's what we usually uh, talk about when we talk about Hosanna, uh, which it does mean that. But, but there's some, some commentators actually think that there's, there's a double meaning happening here, that it could also mean save him, save the son of David. Hosanna to the son of David, save him. It's kind of like when the, the British, our British friends sing, God save the queen. What they're saying is God save her, protect her. And these people, they're saying, God save him, save the king, save, protect him. Why? Because he's the one who's gonna save us. And, and it isn't, isn't it amazing? I, I think this is just incredible that it is only as the father does not spare his son, only as he does not protect his son from death, that we can be saved. This whole scene is like a repeat 
of King Solomon's ride into Jerusalem back in 1 Kings. After Solomon was named king by his father David, uh, as David was dying, he, he anointed Solomon as, Solomon as king and told Solomon to ride this, this very same, uh, through this very same valley into Jerusalem. And what did he tell Solomon to ride? David said, ride my donkey. So he had sent his son Solomon in humility to ride into Jerusalem as the king, this very same route. And now here comes Jesus, the actual fulfillment, the true son of David. This was no random moment. This crowd, they, many of them knew their theology, at least, at least partially. They, they knew that they were witnessing history for Israel. They, they had anticipated this moment. The prophets had been pointing them here. The eternal son is here, greater than Solomon, the real king to sit on David's throne. And look at the end of their song. They sing peace in heaven and glory in the highest heaven. I love that this is, it's almost the same song that the angels sang to the shepherds and announcing Christ's birth that we sing at Christmas, glory to God in the highest. And not just peace on earth, but now, we, now we, they're singing peace in heaven. This humble king, is, his, his glory is reverberating throughout all the universe, to the heavens. Make no mistake, this, these disciples knew. Like they knew who Jesus was showing himself to be. And notice, even they aren't hiding anymore. Make way, they're shouting, not for our rabbi, but for our king. Hosanna to the son of David, Israel's king. But as it might be expected, not everyone was anticipating this moment. And this is our third point, the rejected king. The moment was perfect, perfectly executed. Everything went off without a hitch. This poetic culmination of the whole ministry of Jesus, uh, everyone applauding, here he comes. And as though speaking on behalf of the nation of Israel itself, the Pharisees speak up, of course they do. Uh, in verse 39, some of the Pharisees from the crowd told him, teacher, rebuke your disciples. Now the Pharisees see this and they know what this is supposed to mean. You, you can hear it in their charge. Jesus rebuke them. Tell them to stop saying this. They're acting like you're the promised Messiah. They know, what, they know what they're saying. You need to squash this blasphemy. And in verse 40, Jesus answers in such a, such a great Jesus-like answer. Uh, he, says, he, he said, I tell you, if they were to keep silent, the stones would cry out. It's like he's saying, creation itself is rejoicing. I love his confidence. I love his confidence in the father's approval and the father's, the father's plan to glorify him. He's saying, look, even if everyone here rejects me, the stones are gonna cry out. And, and, and don't you love how these reactions right here, these two contrasting reactions, they pretty much match what we've seen in all of Luke. It's, it's the whole book of Luke played out. Every time Jesus would speak or act or do a sign, there would be worship or belief from the disciples, from the crowds, from the outcasts, from, from the sinners, but hatred from the establishment, anger from the Jewish leaders. And we know ultimately it will lead to rejection by Israel itself. And, and it's striking to see Jesus's emotions 
as he, as he descends down the mountain and as he sees the city. It, it's as though he's, it's as, it's as though as, as the Pharisees speak, it's like, it's, like, it's like he's waking up from a dream. He, he's watching the national dream of Israel collapse in front of his eyes. This whole idea that Israel would wait and say that, that when, when our Messiah comes, we, he, God will be our God and we will be his people. This dream is dying. This accusation from the Pharisees is a stark reminder. Israel doesn't want his rule. Israel doesn't, will not receive their king. And so we see his brokenness. Look at verse 41. As he approached and saw the city, he wept for it saying, if you knew this day, what would bring peace? It's almost like he just stops mid-sentence, but now it's hidden from your eyes. Church, oh, oh, that we would not refuse the peace that Christ offers. They, they want a king who will dominate their enemies. They, they thought that that's what they needed to make everything right for them. They, that's the peace they needed. And Jesus is saying, if you only knew that true peace only comes through a man of sorrows. And and like a father grieving the destruction that his son's sin is bringing. Look what he says in verse 43. For the days will come on you when your enemies will build a barricade around you surround you and hem you in on every side. They will crush you and your children among you to the ground and they will not leave one stone on another in your midst because you did not recognize the time when God visited you. Jesus is prophesying to them. He's saying, because you refused me and are refusing me now, you will be destroyed again. Hasn't this been the theme of Israel's existence? Remember back in the Old Testament, faithless Israel overtaken by by enemies sent into exile. And this time it it won't be Babylon, Babylon, it won't be Assyria, but Rome will destroy the holy city. Why? Jesus says, because you've refused me. You've not known, you've not seen that God was with you. All of God's promises had been at their disposal. All his prophetic warnings were theirs, but here they are, they refuse. And Jesus is saying, because of that, destruction's coming. And not even 40 years from this moment, many of these people will be alive to see it. In AD 70, the very stones of the temple will fall, just as Jesus has said. And so now, in such a bizarre finish to this triumphal entry, Jesus does something so perplexing. This is number four, the true king. Look at verse 45. He went into the temple and began to throw out those who were selling. And he said, it is written, my house will be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of thieves. And we get even more detail from the other gospel accounts. Uh, We see that he kicked people out of the temple. He yelled. And then famously, if you remember, he flips over tables, tossing their money all over the place. So what is this? What is this scene? Like what's going on here? Jesus has so few interactions like this where he responds with any sort of outward anger. So, so what's happening? 
I, I just think for just a minute about like if you, for you sports people, like your, 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 your team that you love hires a new coach. What do a lot of new coaches do when they come in on the way in to their new team? They take the new job, they come in and what do they do? They clean house. All the, all the old staff gone. They bring their new staff in. They're, they're creating a new culture. They're setting a new pace. They're changing things. When a new king is coronated and he assumes his rightful place of rule, his first, first course of action is not to paint the kingly bathrooms. He, he doesn't go and hire a new palace landscaper. He doesn't even sit down and pen a letter to his favorite citizen. No, re- remember the story of, of, of Caesar Augustus? Upon hearing that he would be emperor, Augustus set out to destroy everyone who had threatened and, and plotted in the assassination of his adopted father, Julius Caesar. And you know what he did? He did it. <laughs> He did it. It was a, it was a war path. He and, and his armies went and, and snuffed out all those who had plotted to kill his, his father. And you know what he did after that? He killed the people that helped him kill the people. Like this dude was ruthless, not a good dude. Uh, he was starting fresh. And we see something very similar when King Solomon is coronated in 1 Kings 1. Remember, Solomon had been a bit of an outcast in his family. He was rejected by David's other sons. And so as to show all the nation, David says, make this kingly ride in Jerusalem, like we said on on the donkey. So he takes that same path that Jesus rides down from the Mount of Olives on David's donkey. And when he arrives in the city, in Jerusalem, what does he do? He does a couple of things uh, that many newly appointed kings do. He arrives in the city. He takes his place, his seat on the throne. And then he took aim at those who opposed his father. When he arrived in Jerusalem, Solomon followed David's instructions and he had his own brother, Adonijah, who had sought to take the throne against David's wishes and he had Adonijah killed. And then he banished the priest Abiathar for participating in the plot, being part of the plot to, to, against David. This is what a king would do. Punish the traitors from within and then take aim on the enemies without. Crush those who would seek to harm the nation. And this is why the people were crying, Hosanna, save us. They knew they needed saving. Save us from Rome. And as Jesus completes this humble procession down the mountain to Jerusalem, where does the newly pronounced king, the coronated king, where does he go? He goes to the temple which is just wild anyway. I mean, just, just to think about that for a minute. Jesus walking into the temple. There's so much, there's so many amazing things to think about the temple's place for God's people. But even now with the, the state of the temple, it's like, it's like Luke Skywalker just walking into the Death Star. I mean, it's pretty wild. Um, but he, he, he goes in and what does he do when he gets there? He stands in Solomon's temple and says, mine, this is mine. He says, my house My house will be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of thieves. See, as the people have welcomed their king, they have assumed that his first course of kingly action would be to wage war against their oppressors, to drive Rome out of Jerusalem. That's what they wanted. But see, he starts first with the traitors on the inside. He starts by taking out those who've been unfaithful to his father, the true king, and it was the Jewish leaders who had been unfaithful. It was, they, it was they who had oppressed the nation from within. 
And he walks into the outer courts of the temple. Remember, it's Passover week, so it's like Super Bowl week for the temple. Hundreds of thousands of lambs would be slaughtered that week. Big business. And here in the outer courts, the place where the nations would have shown up, this is the only part of the temple uh, where a non-Jew could enter, the very place that was supposed to signify the, the welcome of God for all. That all nations, anyone from any nation could come and worship the God of Israel. And instead, the Jewish leaders had not simply forsaken that, which they had. Remember, they, they despised Gentiles and outcasts. But not only had they forsaken that task, they had used the temple to turn this beautiful feast that was to, to commemorate God's deliverance of, their, of, of, of his people from e- Egypt. And instead, they had weighed God's people down with the slavery of legalism. And they turned the temple itself into into a place to make a buck off the worshiper. Matthew and Mark, they tell us that at some of these these tables, they were selling doves. Doves would have been purchased by only the poorest of worshipers. And he turned the dove tables over and threw threw their chairs out. The people were coming needing forgiveness and the Pharisees were seeking to make a profit. And so King Jesus walks into their operation and he flips over their tables. He throws out the dove seller's chairs. He's not violent. He doesn't throw punches, but this is his father's house. He's setting things back into order. The true king is here to defend his people. And listen, I think some people see this scene of Jesus turning over tables and, and throwing people out and they see that's, that's gonna be my model for ministry. Like it's not, think again. If that's your model, don't, don't make it your model. Certainly we, we should be righteously indignant over sin, usually uh, mostly our own sin. Uh, but, but if this behavior was not the, the major note in Christ's ministry, uh, then watch out for Christians who always wanna fight, who always wanna flip over tables. Tim Keller says of this scene, he says, the only person who has the right to rearrange the furniture in the home is the owner, which I love. And then lastly, number five, he's the king of all. So notice God doesn't kill these people that he, that he comes in and, and disrupts. But like Adam and Eve, he drives them out. He, he, brings, he brings people out to protect his people from them. And what does he put in their place? Verse 47, every day he was teaching in the temple. In their place, he begins to teach. In this final week of his life, he's now out in the open teaching in the temple. And of course, we know eventually uh, death, his death will be the result. Verse 47 actually tells us that they wanted to do it then, but the, the leaders knew that the people were way too enthralled with him in the moment. Listen, when King Jesus rolled in, reorganizing and rearranging the furniture wasn't his mission, was it? He wanted to reset something. He wanted to make it right in them and in us. Jerusalem had been hijacked by a false teaching, by a false gospel, and Jesus is beginning to set it right. And and, and sadly, what I think we see through this final week of Jesus's life is, is, is that it wasn't just the Jewish leaders who 
were, who had lost sight of God's character and were rejecting Jesus, we'll see that even many of these Jewish people and, and ultimately the whole nation, even though they're enthralled right this moment by Jesus, they too will lose interest. See, they were captivated now, but his teaching won't keep them. What they really wanted was the kingdom that they thought he was bringing right then. Their hope was that sometime later that week or in the near future that he was gonna make a mile and a half walk across to the east side of the city, to Herod's palace, and flip over Pontius Pilate's tables. They wanted him to build an army to overthrow Rome or at least politically somehow get them out of there. But Jesus had a very different enemy in view, didn't he? Jeremiah in Jeremiah 7 spoke of this enemy, of this internal brokenness that had plagued the people. Jeremiah 7, verse 9, the Lord says this through the prophet. He says, do you steal, murder, commit adultery, swear falsely, burn incense to Baal, and follow other gods that you have not known? Then do you come and stand before me in this house that bears my name and say, we are rescued so we can continue doing all these detestable acts? Has this house which bears my name become a den of robbers in your view? Yes, I too have seen it, declares the Lord. You see, Rome was too small of an enemy. Jesus didn't come as king simply to triumph over Rome. They didn't know it, but they needed more than that. Rome was a minor problem compared to the major problem of their own hearts. They needed salvation from themselves. They needed him to vanquish the enemy from within them. They needed one to put an end to the the devil and his works. And in a few short days, their anticipated Messiah would be marched up another hill where he would be hung on a cross. And by his death and his resurrection, he would overthrow the greatest enemy of all. He, he will conquer sin and death forever, not by wielding a sword, but by being pierced. And in the most triumphal entry of all, the Lord Jesus will rise from the dead. Friends, look today at him. The king of Israel, the king of all is the risen one who has come and he has come to you. He's come to me. And he didn't just come to us to move a couple of pieces of furniture around. No, when he came into your life and into mine, when you became a Christian, the Lord Jesus stepped into your life and he proclaimed mine. This is mine. Some of you remember probably the tables that had to be flipped over in your life the idols that had to be tossed out. Our king will not be a king of only a portion. He has come to be king of all of you, of all of me. And and Christian, maybe you've convinced yourself that all you really need now is, is exterior problems vanquished. If God would just fix my work situation, if he would just help me with my financial problem, if he would only fix my kids or my health problems, And and the Lord cares about these things. He says to cast your cares upon him. But he wants even more so to transform your heart. And so I'll ask, what what sin is it for you? What, what, What sin are you hiding from others? Look, the Lord sees and he wants to set you free.
Are you ruled by pleasure, by the approval of others, by food? Look to the king. Are you addicted to pornography? Are you controlled by hatred and unforgiveness? Surrender to the king of kings. Maybe it's the simple confession that, you know, it's a lot easier for me to sing about the king than to actually follow him, to actually obey him. Listen, Christians, our our sin, your sin, is not simply furniture that needs to be moved around and arranged. It is an oppressor. It is an oppressor that seeks to enslave and destroy you. And King Jesus has set you free. He set you free. He loves you. He wants what's best for you. He has driven out the enemy. So don't chain yourself again. Repent, turn to him. Remember what he's done for you and and walk in this freedom. Walk as one of his children, as one of his citizens. Be his. Maybe you've you've never submitted to the king. Maybe you're here today and you're like, "I, I don't know that I've ever seen Jesus as the king of my life. I've never seen him as anything other than a story or just a, an idea of a person. I don't, I, don't, I don't see him as God. I don't see him as king. I, I, would, I would call you today, look at the humility of your king. Look at the humility of the king of kings, the one who was willing to suffer. Why did he do that? You see, he didn't come as a domineering one to assert force over your life. No, he came because you were weak and needed rescue. And in mercy, he was willing to become weak for you. He was becoming willing to suffer for you. He took on flesh. He received hatred, all that he might set you free. But you have to turn from other rescuers. You have to move away from all those other things that you think would bring you happiness. You have to give up on your self-improvement project to make yourself good, to make yourself right. There's no way to do it. Surrender to the true king today. Call out to him, ask him, help me, save me, forgive me, lead me. He will do it. He'll, he'll meet you where you are. He'll, he'll give you mercy. And then for all of those, all of us who have received Christ as our king, know this, sin is no longer your master. Sin is no longer king over you. The risen Christ struck a sword through the belly of death. And so now we can long and wait in freedom for the day when Jesus will come again, when he will set his foot on the Mount of Olives again and salvation will come riding down that mountain again, finally on a war horse. And on that day, Psalm 121 tells us, This is another psalm they would have been singing that very week. It tells us what we have to look forward to when our king comes to vanquish death. Psalm 121, verse one. I lift my eyes toward the mountains. Where will my help come from? My help comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. And listen to what life is like for those who are, who are subjects of the king, who are children of our father. This is when our, when our oppressors are destroyed, when sin and sorrow are vanquished. This is the life he has for us. Verse seven, the Lord will protect you from all harm. He will protect your life. 
that Lord will protect your coming and going both now and forever. Amen. Let me pray for us. Father, we, we see our King. Lord, we acknowledge and we, and we remember the rule and the reign of the humble Son of God who gave himself for us. And yet, Lord, even now, Father, we acknowledge that our hearts want to rule themselves. Our, we feel like we don't need a king. We don't need a savior. We don't need your forgiveness. Lord, would you take the blinders off? Would you, would you take away our pride that says we don't need you? And would you draw us again? Would the humility of Christ overwhelm us? Would his care for his people that would drive out enemies on their behalf, would that, would that humble us? And Lord, would the, would the beautiful suffering, the horrific death and victorious resurrection of our King, would that overwhelm us with the mercy that is now ours? Lord, help us to see, give us eyes to hear. If there's anyone here who doesn't believe, would you, would you draw them now to turn to the King? Help us. We pray this in Christ's name.